how great would it to be in a world of just absolute balance? Um, I'm sure we all today saw the inauguration and how, you know, the world has seemed to achieve some kind of normalcy again. Things are back in balance, but they're really not. We live in a pretty rudderless world. And um, even if I think that's one of the reasons why fantasy, as I'm going to, we're going to go into this next part of this, this book, that's one of the reasons it's so appealing. It's even in a world of such ethereal beauty and monstrous evil, they are completely balanced out and the evil people get eventually what's coming to them and the good people's labors and, and ability to be good people is rewarded. That is not a thing in our world, no matter what anybody wants to tell you. It is not. Karma is not really real. It's strange how it works out sometimes, but it's not really a real thing. Um, that's why I think I got into it because to me, the world was so monstrously unfair when I was a kid and fantasy was a good place for me to, to escape into, even with, you know, things that are just much more evil and monstrous than, than they ever could be in our world, dragons and demons and all these things. They're, they at least were balanced out by something that was equally as powerful and it would eventually defeat them and give them come up, comeuppance. So that's where we're going to go into today is that we, on our last episode, we finished with a monstrous evil, the destruction of the village of Quishu and how awful that was and how ironically it was the best writing. <laughs> maybe, maybe in the book... Uh, there are some other points that are just as great, I think, but that was when they truly, really, Margaret Weiss and Trace Hitman showcased their skills about how great they actually are as writers and how much they had developed, even in that short amount of time. So, uh, just with that, we'll get back into Dragon's Vod and Twilight Part 2. Companions, as they are, uh, these unlikely group of companions have gone east to this highway called Sageway East, heading towards the city of Zaxaroth, where the forest master had told them to go. None of them have been able to sleep. One of the better parts of it is when Flint uh, woke up Tannis, or at least he talked to him after he woke up, and he says, quote, I heard you yelling over there, defending Quishu, and Tannis frowned at the memory. They're all dealing with this not so well, especially... Gold Moon and Riverwind, having seen their people destroyed, even though they have hope that some of them live because there were tracks leading away, that some of them had escaped. And, you know, but it, the odds for them aren't good because there's dragon armies out there. So the companions are heading to Zaxaroth. And they're, like I said, they're on this, this awful road and they have a day to get there. Um, it's, and I want to start with the observation that there are two very important sets of relationships that happen in this part of the book that I think drive the story most and are some of the best uh, best examples is that the first is Gold Moon and Riverwind, and their relationship does not develop well for a minute because Gold Moon, with her father dead, 
has now become chieftain. And by that token, Riverwind is now her subject and not just her betrothed. I would have said lover, but turns out they haven't even had sex yet, which I found to be an odd thing. I mean, considering they're both 30. So I picture, I picture them both being very sexy. Too. <laughs> Absolutely. They describe them as being tall and, and, and so beautiful. And you know what I mean? Um, so she says, um, well, actually what I was just saying is Riverwind saw the tracks and, um, Riverwind says, quote, you are now the ruler and I will be husband, husband of chieftain. And that's, that really is, is a, becomes a big roadblock between them. They, um, Riverwind, especially coming from a family that followed the old gods and have become kind of disgraced in the aftermath of the cataclysm and she, and Goldmoon being from, from what I can gather, a pretty all powerful position. So, you know, there's that. The second one, which I find to be my favorite interaction, is that of Flint, old Flint Fireforge, the the old crotchy old man dwarf. And a character I think that many people have expressed, the fact is their favorite character now is uh, Tasselhoff Burfoot, the kinder. Um, it's odd because in Kryn, the kinder and dwarves are descended from another race. They're both descended from one race, the gnomes. The gnomes, who we haven't met yet, are an extremely interesting and amusing people. They are technologically minded, but their their inventions are needlessly complex with engines and, you know, kicksy winsy wheels and throwing out steam and par par parboil ten gnomes and kill ten over here, and they are undiminished in their in their enthusiasm for it. And sometimes they actually work. So <laughs> their inventions. Not often. One of my favorite things is that their their language is just a huge run on sentence basically because they're so they're so they're manic they're such a manic people they're about three feet in, in height they weigh about forty five to fifty pounds uh, you know the dwarves being taller and much heavier kinder being probably taller and, and more slender you know um, but these humans these knights were having an interaction with uh, this this one gnome it was one night and having an interaction with one gnome and he asked him you know what's the name of this place and he started to launch into this giant name that would have gone for 20 minutes and the knight just got fed up and said never mind and the gnome was so taken by saying that was so to the point but so brief that they named their their place mount Nevermind. so because <laughs> mount Nevermind. <laughs> yes and it's this giant mountain where they do all these experiments and all kinds of stuff. They are endless. Well, we'll meet them soon. Well, not soon in the next book, but it is an endlessly fascinating people. But what happened is that there's a magical artifact in Korea known as the Greystone of Gargath. And it's this, well, it's a, it's a gem, but nobody can ever settle on what it looks like because it looks different to people, to every person at, at any different time. Basically, it's a quantum thing, I think, that, but it's very contained. It contains something that is extremely important in the latter, in the fourth Chronicle book, and it's not a good thing. So the gnomes were consumed with it. Like they wanted to, two different groups of gnomes were trying to get to this gym because they wanted to capture it and use it to do whatever. Half of them wanted to, were greedy for it. The other half were curious for it. So the, the, once they got to, they had figured out how to get to the top of this mountain, they began to fight amongst each other. And people outside observers thought that started to see that the gnomes that were greedy had started to change physically. And the gnomes that were curious had started to change physically. The greedy ones became dwarves. The curious ones became kinder. 
and, and descended throughout the world of Krenn. Um, it's a myth. I don't know if it happened, but it's a nice, nice creation. And I love the fact that those two descendants, to, representatives of the, the descendants of those of that one race, now have this really touching, deep relationship, Flint and Tasselhoff. Um, Flint, they're now when they're on this Sageway East, it becomes Swampland. <laughs> so Flint falls into one of the the uh, one of the stinking swamp parts, of course, because that's what he does. I mean, he's kind of comic relief to be so gruff and crouchy of a character. So they're heading to Zaxaroth, and um, he pulls him out. Uh, Tannis Caraman pulls him out, of course, because that's always Caraman's job, apparently, and uh, sets him down. And then Flint is. Old, so he's got rheumatism and he's cold and all that stuff. So Tannis goes to Tasselhoff and says, you know, well, you know, do you have something in your pouches to help? And he knew what he was talking about. Booze is what he's talking about. So but uh, Pappy's medicine. <laughs> right. So Tasselhoff said, sure. And one of my favorite parts of it is um he warned him just a little, warm you up, and keep you going. But that didn't quite happen that way. So quote Tasselhoff soon forgot, air quotes. Tannis is warning about drinking a little, only a little of the brandy. The liquid warmed the blood and took the edge off the gloomy atmosphere. So the Kinder and Dwarf passed the flask back and forth many times until it was empty, and they were traipsing along, making jokes about what they would do if they encountered a draconian. I'd turn it to stone, all right, the Dwarf said, swinging an imaginary battle axe. Wham! Right in the lizard's gizzard. I'll bet Raceland could turn to one to stone with a look, Taz imitated the, ma- the mage's grim face and dour stare. They both laughed loudly, then hushed, giggling, peering back unsteadily to see if Tennis had heard them. I love this fact that these two are drunk, and they're leading the party, basically, and they are like children looking to make sure they're not getting in trouble, because Tannis is kind of a stick in the mud, kind of. They should have listened when they said to only take a, take a little bit of it. It's like taking an edible from Joey Diaz. Absolutely. Especially, can you imagine how strong booze are in this, in this universe, in this, in this planet? Brandy especially. You know, it'd just be crazy. Um, they keep going along, and then they find an actual bridge, and um, Flint <laughs> doesn't realize how drunk he is, and... That'll get you every time. <laughs> um, I'm trying to find where he's. All right. It's and, and in his mind, it says, quote, a voice in the unbrandied part of Flint's mind told him he could never have done this cold sober. It also told him he was a fool for crossing the bridge without waiting for the others, but he ignored it. He was feels, feeling positively young again. He's drunk. So. <laughs> so Starts telling everybody he loves him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. It's not really his forte. Um but and then it says, "Quote: Tasselhoff enchanted with pretending he was Margot the Magnificent, and never explained who that is. Looked up and discovered that he did indeed had an audience. One of those draconian things leaped into the frog in front of him. The sight sobered Taz up rapidly. The kinder was not given to fear, but he was certainly amazed. They've walked into an ambush, ambush, uh, pretty much, um, and then they get taken. Uh, Raceland was trying to cast a spell. He gets hit with a poison dart. That actually becomes fairly important." Uh, the the Draconians, remember, have magic using them among them. Um, there's all different kinds of races um, of Draconians, like we said, descended from or created from good dragons. And um, obviously, they're going to have some magic users with them. So, but uh, before this happened, before they get taken, Ta- Flint and Tasselhoff fall off the log into the water. And <laughs> um, he had actually... All right, here we go. This is, again, a really funny part. Quote, lying on the ground, panting for breath, Tasselhoff watched as the draconians prepared to carry off his unconscious friends. 
The kinder was well hidden beneath a brush, a bush near the swamp. The dwarf was stretched out next to him, knocked out cold. Taz glanced at him in remorse. He had had no choice. In his panic, Flint had dragged the kinder down in the cold water. If he hadn't clunked the dwarf over the head with his hoopack staff, neither of them would have surfaced alive. He'd hauled the comatose, comatose dwarf out of the water and hidden him beneath the bush. So Flint was freaking out because he can't swim, because dwarves can't swim. We talk about certain groups of people being negative buoyant. The dwarves sink like rocks because they are nothing but muscle, and they have virtually no fat on them. They're just a rock, you know, so uh, Flint was freaking out, so Tasselhoff had to hit him. Um, they Tasselhoff, of course, is seeing where they're taking, and they're trying to, you know, follow him, and then Flint wakes up um, and says, quote, what happened? The dwarf moaned, his head on his hand. You fell off the bridge and hit your head on a log, Taz said glibly. I did? Flint looked suspicious. I don't remember that. I remember those Dartonian things coming at me, and I remember falling into the water. Well, you did, so don't argue, Taz said hurriedly, getting to his feet. Can you walk? He's... <laughs> He doesn't remember, so Tassoff certainly is going to tell him because that would make Flint extremely mad. Um, another thing that happens, Flint loses his helmet. That's like losing your favorite hat, but it's actually also functional. Dwarves are love their metalwork. Flint had probably made that helmet himself so because he was an accomplished metalsmith. So we'll actually get into that in another book um, called Kindred Spirits. I've discussed before. The, it's the first meeting between Tannis and Flint, which is an excellent book. Like a, a prequel? Um, yes. It's uh, when Tannis is in Qualanost, Flint gets to be, he's he's famous, basically. As famous as anybody can be in this world where you have no mass media, you have no, no other things. Yeah, but there's his, no internet. Right. So he his metalwork is so good, though, that he sold it and it's made its way around Ancelon. So the Speaker of the Sun, uh, Solastarin, saw his metalwork, loves it so much, and he was trying to reach out to other races because he was trying to be a wise ruler and wanted to have more cooperation and maybe his people wouldn't be so insular. So he sent a messenger for him saying, you know, could you come to Qualnost and do some projects for me? It's a beautiful book. It's, it's one of the best books I've ever seen to absolutely do all the little things and warn things right. It doesn't, it never does anything wrong in that book. The action is not sometimes not so great, but I don't think they were really going for that. It was just kind of like to hurry the story along, you know, and it was just, there were some really truly, great parts flint being a uh, very gruff and all that stuff but with such a soft heart he he's actually a better uh better with wood than he is metal for some reason um he's a great carver we saw that when he when he was first introduced he had pulled something out and started whittling and one of his favorite things is he used to go to the where the kids would play the elven kids who were probably his age but they just don't age as fast he would all all through the week just carve these toys and and put them up on a shelf, and then he'd load the sack up, and he'd take it down there like Santa Claus, you know, and, and he'd give the toys out to the kids, and, you know, they all loved them, and they loved him, you know, so it's actually a very good book. But um, Tasselhoff um, wants to follow him and, 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 and break them out of the Draconian's camp. Uh, Flint sees how ridiculous that w was going to be, but Tasselhoff has a unique take on this. He says, quote, yes, well, Taz Paws considered – Pause to consider the situation. He brightened. That's all the better. The more of them are, the less chance they'll have of seeing us. He started off again. Flint frowned. There was something wrong with that logic, but right now he couldn't figure out what, and he was too wet and chilled to argue. <laughs> Ever the optimist. <laughs> he really is an optimist. Um, and then we come to, they find the Draconian's camp, and we get our first taste of a dragon. Kind of. Uh, <laughs> um, taste of a dragon. <laughs> that could be a... Uh, it could be a porn. It really, I know I was going to say that sounds like a porno name, but um, Flint sees it first and says, "Great reorks," which is the dwarven uh, god. It says a dragon. 
the best description is from Tassoff's point of view. So it says, quote, Taz was too stunned to say anything. He and the dwarf watched in amazed horror as the dragon draconians danced and prostrated themselves before a giant black dragon. The creature looked inside the remaining half shell of a crumbled domed ruin. His head was higher than the treetops. Its wingspan was enormous. One of the draconians wearing robes bent before the dragon, gesturing to the staff as it lay on the ground with the captured weapons. There's something strange about that dragon, Taz whispered after watching a few moments. Like they're not supposed to exist, Flint said. That's just the point, Taz said. Look at it. That creature isn't moving or reacting to anything. It's just sitting there. I always thought the dragons wouldn't be more lively. Go up and tickle its foot, Flint snorted. Then you'll see lively. So (laughs) they're arguing about what they're supposed to do. So then the others start to wake up. You know, they're discussing their situation, which is not good. Um Raceland, like I said, has been hit. Here's a plot. Here, here is a plot hole. I know we weren't said I weren't going to discuss this some, but you kind of have to because it's just it, it begs the question. If they wanted to kill him with a poison dart, he was at their mercy. Why didn't he just kill him to begin with? You know what I mean? I always thought about that. I was like, wait a second. They want him to die, and they're not going to give him an antidote. So they're just going to not kill him. You know, he's a mage. Raceland, that is. I always thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, but um. They're, of course, they wonder where Flint and Taz is. Caraman is consumed with worry over, over uh, Raceland. You know, they're all wondering what the hell they're going to do. So uh, Tannis tries to speak to one of the Draconians, and he, he says, quote, one of our party is injured. We ask that you treat him. Give an antidote to this poison dart. Poison, the Draconian appeared in the cage. Oh, yes, the magic user. The creature gurgled deep in his throat. Here we have a little bit of mustache twirling, but it's all right. A sound obviously meant to be laughter. Sick, is he? Yes, the poison acts swiftly. Can't have a magic user around. Even behind bars, they're deadly. But don't worry. He won't be lonely. The rest of you will be joining him soon enough. In fact, you should envy him. Your death won't be nearly as quick. So that did something that they really shouldn't have done is piss Karaman off. They're in a bamboo cage. Caraman has to weigh at least 300 pounds, and it's all muscle. So they all saw it was going to happen, and Tannis tries to stop him, but it's too late. Quote, with a roar like a, with a, roar like a wounded animal, the huge warrior leaped to the, toward the draconians. Bamboo gave way before him, the shards splintering and cutting into his skin. Mad with a desire to kill, Caraman, noticed. Caraman never noticed. Tannis jumped on his back as the warrior crashed past him, but Caraman shook him off as easily as a bear shakes a, an annoying fly. Caraman is really strong if you haven't got it, gotten that point by now. Um, so, uh, it doesn't really work, and the draconians are starting to cluster around. I'm going to kill them, but then all of a sudden, the dragon starts to speak, and it says, "Quote." At that instant, the high pitched, shrill voice screeched through the camp. "Bring the warrior to me," said the dragon. Uh, Tannis felt the hair rise on his neck. You know, this, it's a dragon now. So, um, two draconians are arguing over the dra- dragon talking. Apparently, they don't get it. They don't think it should be talking right now. We'll get into that why it is. Um, hey, why not dragon talking? <laughs> um, the dragon's, uh, okay. The dragon continues to talk. Uh, quote, what is the delay? The dragon's voice shrieked like a wailing in. Bring me the warrior. And uh, they bring Caraman forward. He's all cut up, you know, just, and he's in, he's in so much, Sorry because his brother's dying. You know, they're really close. Even though Raceland is an asshole to him, they're very close. And I would have discussed this at the top of the show, the, the relationship between the two brothers, but that doesn't really, we won't really get into that until maybe the third act. And then they start to build them as, you know, two of the more main characters. Um, the other relations I'll talk about were more pertinent for this part. Um, and then uh, Draconian looks at, uh, at Caravan. And he says a very warrior thing. Uh, he says, uh, quote, 
I ask only one thing, give me my sword so that I can die fighting. Um, the, and then, quote, the dragon laughed shrilly. The dr- draconians joined it, gurgling and croaking horribly. As the dragon's wings beat the air, it began to rock back and forth, seemingly prepared to leap on the warrior and devour him. Everybody's freaking out. Can you imagine this giant thing? And it, they don't give you any reason to believe that it's, you know, look, you know, it looks anything more than monstrous. And they're all just, uh, the pa- companions have pretty much given up. But at that moment, uh, Flint has gotten Tass- Tannis's attention. He's like, you know, come here. And he's just like, uh, and he's like, get out. If Tannis like, get out of here. You know, there's nothing you can do. You know, it's a dragon. What are we going to do? You know, just run away so you can live and the rest of us going to die. Can't put a fucking saddle on it. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so, uh, it's a great exchange here because it seems to be odd to begin with. And it says, uh, quote, there's nothing you can do. Raceland's dying in the dragon is Tasselhoff, Flint said succinctly. And Tannis says, quote, what? Makes sense. The dragon is Tasselhoff, Flint repeated patiently. For once, Tannis was speechless. He stared at the dwarf. The dragon's made of wicker, the dwarf here whispered hurriedly. Tasselhoff sneaked behind it and looked inside. It's rigged. Anyone sitting inside the dragon can make the wings flap and speak through a hollow tube. <laughs> I guess that's how the priests keep order around here. Anyway, Tasselhoff's the one flapping his wings and threatening, threatening to eat caravan. I can just see Tasselhoff in, enjoying himself immensely doing this, like losing himself in it. Apparently, he already has because he's being real dramatic, you know. Um, so they're starting to now decide what they're going to do. They're going to break out, get you know, go through the through the chaos of what's going to happen. So, um, and it starts this way: "Quote, Caraman lifted his sword. It flashed in the firelight. The dragon went into a wild frenzy, and all the draconians fell back, braying and beating their swords against their shields." Wind from the dragon's wings blew up ashes and sparks from the fire, sending some nearby bamboo huts on fire. The draconians did not notice, so eager were they for the kill. The dragon shrieked and howled, and Caraman felt his mouth go dry and his stomach muscles clench. It was the first time he had ever gone into battle without his brother. Thought made him his heart throb painfully. That's kind of a sweet part. Um, He was about to leap forward and attack when Tannis, Sturm, and Riverwind appeared out of nowhere to stand by his side. And uh, basically saying, you know, we're not going to... We're not going to let our friend die alone. Caraman tells Tannis, get the hell out of here, basically. This is my fight. You know, just, um, and then he explains to him, quote, Tasselhoff's the dragon. There isn't time to explain. Just do as I say. Get the staff and take it into the woods. Gold moon's waiting. You know, they're all getting their plan together. So, um, and then the dragon, Tasselhoff, says, quote, and now prepare to die, humans, the dragon screams. Its wings gave a great lurch, and suddenly the creature was flying, hovering midair. Okay, I have a problem with this. How the <laughs> hell is a wicker dragon? That might have been some great engineering, uh, but it's one of those things that you just have to let go because, it, yes, it's ridiculous, but it's a part of the story, and it's fun, even though it's impossible. Um, the Trigonians croaked and cried out in alarm, some breaking for the woods, others hurling themselves flat on the ground. Now, yelled Tannis, run, Caraman. And Caraman runs. And the rest of them are, you know, he grabs the staff and all that stuff so he can get away. Um, Goldmoon gets the, uh, you know, trying to get the staff to heal Raceland, and it won't work. Raceland, at this time, I'm sure that the, the goddess who created the staff, which we'll get into in, in a little bit, knew he was evil. But why she wouldn't heal him, I didn't get that either. You know what I mean? He's not necessarily even become an evil mage at this point. He's We've discussed this before. There's three orders of high sorcery, and they're based on the three moons of Kryn. Solinari being the white moon, uh, Lunatari being the red moon, and Nuatari being the black moon. And What about Atari 26? <laughs> I knew you were going to say something like that. Um, you told me to talk more. <laughs> no, I'm, gl- I'm glad you did because it helps <laughs> me get through. Um, 
each order follows the spells that you get from. So Solinar, of course, would be the white robes, red robes, black robes. White robes are good. Red robes are neutral. Again, our our theme of balance for this show, and the and the black robes are evil, and they are pretty much equally as powerful. All three, and they need each other, kind of to when they sometimes they all have to work together. And when they're at the towers of high sorcery, they do not fight amongst each other, amongst each other. Cause the magic is a uniting force in the world outside. They will gladly kill each other, but in there they, they, they're sometimes people who are, are enemies on the outside become friends when they come to the towers because it's nothing personal, you know, it's sort of like Congress or Senate. Basically. Yes. It's very, it's very similar. And they all make, they make decisions for the good of magic, not for the good of their order. Now, sometimes they make decisions for the good of their order, but as long as it doesn't take away from magic in general, you know what I mean? So, um, so the dragon is now flying <laughs> and quote, Caraman turned just in time to see the great black wicker dragon crash headlong into the blazing bonfire, flaming log flew into the air, showering sparks over the camp. The draconians bamboo huts, summary already ablaze began burning fiercely. The wicked dra- wicker dragon gave a final horrifying shriek. And then it too caught fire. Now we get into, um, the Flint's love for Tasselhoff. Because he sees what happened, and that's dangerous. So, uh, quote, Tasselhoff Flint swore, that blasted kinder, he's inside there. Before Caramon could stop, stop, and the dwarf ran out into the blazing draconian camp. So, you know, you're just, he's, that's his, basically, I think he sees him kind of like his son. You know, he's so much younger. Kinder age like humans. I don't know why the two races are different in that aspect. Gnomes are basically age like dwarves where they can live to be, an extremely old dwarf would be, or and known would be about 200 years. That's ancient. An old dwarf would be 150. They age basically 50 more years than we do. You know, so um, Kinder age like humans. They just, um, you know, 50 would be old. I think what Tassoff would be about maybe 20. So, um, and and we go from there. Quote, Sturm turned and saw the Black Wicker Dragon burning with flames that shot high into the air. Thick smoke boiled up, blanketing the camp. The dank, heavy swamp air prevented from rising and drifting away. Sparks showered down as part of the blazing dragon exploded into the camp. Sturm ducked and bat out sparks that landed on his cape, then ran after the dwarf, catching up with a short leg flint easily. Uh, he tries to reach out and grab him, saying it's no use. You know, nothing can live through that, and flint turns on him in a rage, and he says, quote, let go of me. Flint roared so furiously that Sturm let go in amazement. Dwarf ran for the burning dragon again. Sturm heaved aside and ran after him, his eyes beginning to water in the smoke. Tasselhoff Burfoot, Flint called. You idiotic kinder, where are you? Unquote. Um, and then Flint just continues to go on. He, quote, Tasselhoff, Flint screamed, if you wreck this escape, I'll murder you. So help me. And then he starts to cry. Tears of frustration and grief and anger and smoke course down the dwarf course down the dwarf's cheeks but then they see the head and they see tasselhoff's little blue leg sticking out of it looking like a tongue i mean it's so so and he can't get out it's like stuck so um like winnie the pooh in a a tree (laughs) yes so um actually it's still stuck on the on the neck so Sturm draws his sword and says quote i may cut off his head be muttered to flint but this is only chance he cuts cuts the head off and then (laughs) Um, Riverwind comes out of nowhere And <laughs> Quote His words were lost in a roar of flame But Riverwind finally saw the blue leg sticking out of the dragon's ma- mouth He grabbed hold of one side of the dragon's head Thrusting his hands in one of the eye sockets Sturm, Sturm got hold of the other And together they lifted the head Kinder inside and man r- began running through the camp Those few draconians they encountered Took one look at the terrifying apparition and fled 
they're carrying a dragon's head that they still think is a dragon, so it scares the shit out of them. They run away. So um, then they they were running out of the camp with it, and then Raceland sees it, and this is a great description of from Tannis's point of view about Raceland laughing. Quote, Tannis had never heard the mage laugh before, even when Raceland was a child, and he hoped that he would never hear it again. It was weird, shrill, mocking laughter. Caraman stared at his brother in amazement, gold moon in horror. Finally, the sound of the Raceland's laughter died until the mage was laughing silently, his golden eyes reflecting the glow of the draconian camp going up in flames. I'll say this, even for this early part of their writing, you know, when they had first, I think their first novel they had written, they're not the best at some things. But characterization, character, characterizations they're extremely good at. Like they, they're not. None of these characters are two dimensional. They really had. They, you know, well, with the exception, Sturm hasn't really come into his own yet. You know, and, and his character hasn't been developed. Riverwind has, to a certain degree, in opposition to Gold Moon. Uh, the ones they develop most, of course, are Tannis, Tesselhoff, and Flint, and uh, Raceland. Um, Caraman hasn't been developed. He's just a big, strong guy who loves his brother. You know, that will change. And all these characters eventually become extremely three, you know, three dimensional and you really grow to know what they're going to do. And, you know, that's the essence of anything character driven is that they have to react the way they should react. You know, that's what makes it interesting because in a sense you can predict what they're going to do, but once you finally see them do it, it gives you a sense of fulfillment. Like I knew that was going to happen. And also sometimes it's comical. Like a good example is Hank Hill in King of the Hill always acts the way Hank Hill would act. You know what I mean? Like, He's such a stickler for everything. He's like, one time he's just like, uh, I think we ought to call the company we got this grout from. They said it's good for 20 years. It's been good for what? 17? 18? (laughs) He's just like that. You know what I mean? You remember Um, when him and Peggy were camping and they were nude on on like a a lake? Yes. And... They're cooking burgers. Yeah. And he's like, well, I don't usually press on them, but uh, we seem to be in a time struggle here. So, so yeah. he, he pressed down on the burger. Yes. Um, so they get the head. And then Karen, of course, the one who always do, has to do the feats of strength because he's just a beast, apparently, comes in, pulls the, the head of the thing off, goes tumbling backwards. And then, of course, here comes Tasselhoff, absolutely unfazed by the whole thing. And he says, Quote, Taz breathed a, a sigh of relief that he began to talk. As after he, Kinder are extremely vain when it comes to their hair. So he thought when he cut the thing off that he cut off his top knot, he didn't. So that's why he was relieved. Not because he got out of the damn dragon head. It's just because his hair is still there. Um, and then he, he begins to talk. He says, uh, Tannis, it was the most wonderful thing flying like that. And look on Caraman's face. And Tannis is just like, stop right now. We got to get the hell out of here. So, you know. So from there, they keep going along this um into so they've the, escaped the draconians basically yes uh now they're back in the swamp heading east still and um they find this obelisk big giant stone piece um and um they're examining it but Rachel, of course being the learned one is learned it goes up once to check it out also because he's curious too i mean he's not a kinder but you don't go into magic unless you're curious about some things you know so um, but from Tassoff's point of view, quote, the kinder bent down, tracing runes with his small hand. What does it say, Raceland? Can you read it? The language seems very old. It is old, the mage whispered, did days from before the cataclysm. The runes say the great city of Zaxaroth, whose beauty surrounds you, speaks to the good of its people and, its, and their generous deeds. The, go- the gods reward us in the grace of our home. That's actually a pretty nice thing to say about your town, I suppose. I can never see that being said about Montgomery or, <laughs> or Golly Bridge, for that matter. Two, t- two towns we... You know, are both around. Um, 
this also leads to, you know, that's that's an introduction. They're getting close to Zaxaroth. They're almost there. And, and one of my favorite parts that develops these characters, like I said, that's the theme, is Riverwind, because Tannis was an elf or half-elf, they hadn't really become friends yet. But then that, they cha- that changes this moment because they've gone through this, this awful thing with each other. Quote, Riverwind start, startled him by suddenly clasping the half-elf's hand with his. I've never known an elf, the plainsman said. My people distrust him, saying that the elves have no care for Kryn or for humans. They've got a point. Um, I think my people may have been mistaken. I'm glad I met you, Tannis of Qualanos. I count you as a friend. Tannis knew enough of Plainsword to realize with this statement, Riverwind had declared himself willing to sacrifice anything, everything for the half-elf, even his life. A vow of friendship was a solemn vow among the Plainsmen. So now they're, they're friends, and they're lifelong friends now. Did they do, like, the forearm handshake? No, I don't. Like, probably. I mean, it was, they'll, they'll definitely do that way in any kind of adaptation, because that's yeah, seems more. There's going to be a forearm handshake. Right. There's, it's, it's just more ominous. And they go, I. They finally get into the city, um, or at least into the approaches of the city. Um, quote, Tannis had never seen a more dismal place. As they walked, the broad street took them into an open paved courtyard. To the east stood four tall, freestanding columns that supported nothing. The building lay in ruins around them. A huge, broken, unbroken circular stone wall rose about four feet above the ground. Um, Caraman, going over to inspect it, announced that it was a well. It's a pretty big well, you know. Um, but, quote, north of the well stood what appeared to be the only building to have escaped the destruction of the cataclysm. This is important. It, finally, it was finally constructed of pure white stone supported by tall, slender columns. Large golden double doors gleamed in the moonlight. If they're gold, how did they survive this far without somebody stealing them? That was my question. But, you know, um, Raceland, basically, he's being, again, the learner would send that that was a temple to the ancient gods. Um, he'd probably read about them in his studies. Then Gold Moon is really drawn to it. Quote, a temple, she repeated, staring at the building. How beautiful. She walked toward it, strangely fascinated. Um, then they see a draconian, and it sees them, and it jumps down into the well. Its wings, you know, unfurl, and it flies down. You know, they can't fly, but they can glide. Um, like a turkey. <laughs> basically, yeah, uh, except they can't get into trees. Um, then we start getting something really ominous. Something's getting ready to happen, some big thing. And uh, Raceland is one to identify it. Quote, it has gone to warn something. He huddled in his cloak and stared around his eyes wide. Can't you feel it? Any of you, half-elf, evil, about to waken and come forth. Um, Tasselhoff, of course, hearing something, is extremely uh, interested. Runs over to take a look. Um, he goes, stares down eagerly into the well, because he's like, hey, something really awesome is going to happen. I don't care if it's terrible. You know, so uh, Raceland says, get him away from there. Um, let's see. Gold Moon at this point has disappeared. Nobody can find her. Um and then they hear something coming up the well and feel something up the, up the well. Um, quote, Tannis was stunned by the noise. Unable to move, he saw Sturm, saw Sturm, handled his sword slowly back away from the well. He saw Raceland, the mage's ghastly face, glistening metallic yellow. Man, they're so good at writing sometimes. His golden eyes red in the moon's light. Screamed something Tannis couldn't hear. He saw Tassahaw staring up the well in wide-eyed wonder. Sturm ran across the courtyard, scooped up the kinder in one arm and ran on to the trees. Carolyn ran to his exhausted brother, caught him up and headed for cover. Tannis knew some monstrous evil was coming up out of the well, but he could not move. The words run, full run, screamed in his brain. Um, trying to get to the best explanation and description. Quote, as the stones of the well began to slide, Riverwind moved away and caught sight of Tannis. The half-elf was shouting and pointing past Riverwind toward the temple. 
where everyone knew Tannis was saying something, but he couldn't hear above the shrieking sound. Then he knew, Gold Moon, where everyone turned to go to her, but he lost his balance and fell to his knees. He saw Tannis start to run toward him, then the horror burst from the well, the horror of his fevered nightmares. Riverwind closed his eyes and saw no more. It was a dragon. We have an actual dragon now. I kind of like that they had a little bit of foreshadowing, but it was very short shadow. Like, it was like yeah. fake dragon, real dragon. You know what I mean? Which, and okay. Um, we're going to get into this dragon, and we're going to have a description of dragons in uh, a segment um, I was going to call um, Fantasy Beast Jerry. So, uh, here's the... One of the, the first description, and it's from Tannis' point of view, of course, being the everyman character. Quote, Tannis, in those first few moments when the blood seemed to drain from his body, leaving him limp and lifeless, lifeless, looked at the dragon as it burst forth from the well and thought, how beautiful, how beautiful. Sleek and black, the dragon rose, her glistening wings, I don't know how they knew it was a girl, folded close to her sides, her scales gleaming. Her eyes glowed red-black, the color of molten rock. That is a badass image. Um, her, mouth, her mouth opened in a snarl, teeth flashing white and wicked. Her long red tongue curled as she breathed the night air clear of the well's confines the dragons spread her wings blotting out stars of glittering moonlight each wing was tipped with a pure white claw that shone blood red in the light of lunatari fears such as tannis had never imagined shriveled in his stomach his heart throbbed painfully he couldn't catch his breath he could only stare in horror and awe and marvel at the creature's deadly beauty the dragon circled higher and higher in the night sky then just as tannis felt the paralyzing fear start to recede just as he began to fumble for his bone arrows the dragon spoke this is you know, this is a black dragon on Korean. As we discussed before, you know, you have the chromatic dragons being evil, the metallic dragons being good. Black dragons are known. They're 30 feet long. That's a, that's a, you know, not a big dragon, but they're known for their, uh, they usually live in swamps, places where people usually don't go. And they also can live in subterranean places. Um, it's because some people think they have a version of the light, but this, I don't think they ever established that really. Um, they're extremely intelligent. They're one of the more intelligent dragons. Intelli- and I'm talking about as intelligent as in people. Dragons and Kryn are not beasts. They are, are, they're essentially a race. They are monsters, but they think they are sentient. You know, they, they're not the dragons like we would see typically in uh, Game of Thrones, where they are these massive, terrifying beasts, but they're still animals. These are not animals. These are extremely powerful beings, sentient beings. So uh, they breathe acid. This is one of the, every dragon has a different, you know, breath weapon. Sort of like the great Muta, the green mist. The red very, mist. very much like the great. Muta. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> much more effective. The great Mutaz was extremely effective. I mean, he yeah. could win matches with that every breath. time. I mean, he just have to do the thing and you know, spit it out. Um, like, for example, uh, red dragons, of course, known for fire breath, uh, blue dragons breathe, they can shoot lightning, you know, like black dragons shoot. Uh, one of the coolest ones is green dragons can breathe chlorine gas, which is an extremely odd breath weapon. That's against the Geneva Convention. <laughs> it's mustard gas. It's a mustard gas dragon. I'm supposed to do that. Um, it, you know, it's just... Uh, fascinating creatures um i actually did some prep i read about these different dragons and stuff in Dragonlance adventures it's an old hardback book i got the pdf and uh black dragons are also extremely skilled in magic the 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 spell they like to cast most of course is darkness they just put it in a natural darkness so that's what this dragon does what i like was about this is now uh it is now circled above them um and then 
Quote, then there was a very gentle rustling sound, the sound of leaves shivering as the wind rises above the storm. The sound grew louder and louder until it was a rushing of wind when the storm hits, and then it was the shrieking of the hurricane. Tannis, Tannis pressed his body close against the crumble well and covered his head with his arms. The dragon was attacking. Then we, what we get is something that you would never get in Game of Thrones. You, they actually tell the story from the dragon's point of view. I thought was a good idea. You know, quote, she could not see through the darkness she had cast, but Cassanth, that's her secret name, knew that the intru- the intruders were still in the courtyard below. Uh, a little bit of explanation. Cassanth would be the dragon, would be the name she would have amongst other dragons. Uh, am- among mortals, let's say, or not, well, they can die. They're not immortal, but amongst the other races, they would she would be called Onyx. Is that her name? Um, Slam! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, quote, her minions, the Draconians, have warned her that a group walked the land carrying the blue crystal staff. Lord Verminard wanted that staff. We'll discuss Ver- Verminard soon. Wanted it kept safe with her, never to be seen in human, human lands. But she had lost it, and Lord Verminard had not been pleased. She had to get it back. Therefore, Cassanth had waited an instant before casting her darkness spell, studying the intruders carefully, searching for the staff. Unaware that it had already passed beyond her sight, she was pleased. She had only to destroy. The attacking dragon dropped from the sky, her leathery wings curving back like the blade of a black dagger. She drove straight for the well when she had seen the intruders running for their lives. Knowing that they would be paralyzed by dragon fear, Cassanth was certain she could kill them all with one pass. She opened her fanged mouth. Dragon fear is a thing that they discuss in source books and stuff. Humans are so paralyzed in fear by such an awesome creature that they freeze. They can't really do anything to fight. That is one of the, you know, you can imagine a a creature that's can use magic and intelligent and then monstrous is going to be terrifying. But for them, it's almost like a magical thing. Like dragon fear can spread even amongst their allies, you know, so they have to be careful about what's going on. So, um, it's like when you play a, a high school football game against the the top recruit in the state. Yeah, it's the worst, and man. And you're like, you've been preparing all week for this fucking guy. But you can't prepare for it. <laughs> um, and then we get to see the effects of her breath. Quote, Tannis heard the dragon coming near. The great rushing sound grew louder and louder. Then stopped for an instant. I'm usually not going to read this much of the stuff without an explanation, but this is such good writing and it's such a good explanation. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Uh, he could hear huge tendons creaking, lifting, and spreading giant wings. Then he heard a great gasping sound of air being drawn into a gaping throat. <laughs> then a strange Fuck sound yeah. that, <laughs> that reminded him of steam escaping from a boil, boiling kettle. Something liquid splashed near him. He could hear rocks splitting and cracking and bubbling. Drops of the liquid splashed on his hand. He gasped as a searing pain penetrated his being. It's acid. They, Like I said, black dragons breathe acid. Um, that too should be against the Geneva Convention. I'm not sure if it is. Absolutely. I'm not sure if the dragons follow the Geneva Convention. And here's the thing I was warning you about earlier. Quote, then Tannis heard a scream. It was a deep voice scream, a man's scream, Wiverwind. So terrible, so agonized with scream that Tannis dug his fingernails into his palms to keep from adding his own voice to that horrible wail and revealing himself to the dragon. So um, he was hit with full on with the acid. She caught him. So this is the aftermath of that. Quote, what Tannis, of course, is the one to get to him. Quote, what remained of Wither, Riverwind no longer resembled anything human. The man's flesh had been seared from his body. The white of bone was clearly visible where skin and muscle had melted from his arms. His eyes ran like jelly down the fleshless, cadaverous cheeks. This is rough. His mouth gaped open in a silent scream. His rib cage lay exposed, hunks of flesh and charred clothing clinging to his bones. But most horrible, the flesh on his torso had been burned away, leaving burned away, leaving the organs exposed, pulsing red in the garish red moonlight. That's about as that is a, as good of a description I've heard as a mortal wound ever. You know, I mean, it paints a very dreadful picture, but it's really good writing. So 
I feel like I just watched an ISIS beheading video. <laughs> Here's the worst part, though. Um, Does he get to die? <laughs> well, here we go. Um, then he heard, then Tannis heard the sound of Sturman's voice. May the true gods have mercy. Tannis, he's still alive. I saw his hand move. So he's still alive. And then Tannis, end it. Tannis said hoarsely, his throat, rose, his throat raw from by, end it, Sturm. And Sturm was about ready to perform something that he would perform for another night. I think that this just goes to show uh, how much he thought of Riverwind already, and they really hadn't become friends yet. Quote, the knight had already drawn his sword. Kissing the hilt, he raised the blade to the sky and stood before Riverwind's body. He closed his eyes and mentally withdrew into an old world where death and battle had been glorious and fine. That's very good writing. Uh, slowly and solemnly, he began to recite the ancient Slamic death chant. As he spoke the words that laid hold of the warrior's soul and transported it to the realms of peace beyond, he reversed the blade of the sword and held it po- po- poised above Riverwind's chest. Um, I can read. Should I read the poem that he says? Yeah. Okay. For the path of the righteous man is <laughs> Ezekiel twenty. Jules, what did you get here? <laughs> That's a goddamn dragon. <laughs> I didn't know there were gonna be dragons up in this motherfucker. Listen, man, there's dragons. We got to take care of these dragons. Vincent, what the fuck you get us into? <laughs> uh, anyway, um, this show just went completely off the rails. <laughs> no, quote: Return this man to human's breast, beyond the wild and partial skies. Grant to him a warrior's rest. And was set the last spark of his eyes free from the smothering clouds of wars upon the torches of the stars. Let the surge of let the last surge of his breath take refuge in the cradling air above the dreams of ravens where only the hawk remembers death. Then let his hand then let his shade to human to humor rise beyond the wild and partial skies. They're actually pretty man. Their their poems and and songs in this are actually really good. I think they're both musically oriented because for another series we're going to do on lay on down the road called the death gate cycle, which is going to be an entire year's worth of shows basically because those, there are so many of them and they're such good books and there's so many concepts, but they actually wrote songs with notes in the back that you can perform, which is a really, yeah. I mean, I'll bring some of the books. We I've got one in here. I'll let you check it out. Um, but then, out of nowhere, quote, then a clear voice spoke, stop, bring him to me. And it's Gold Moon. She has now uh, come out. And Tannis basically tries to stop her. But then Raceland says, quote, do as she says, may just carry him to her. Um, and then Raceland actually says something that's, you know, pious, which he, you know, quote, take him to her, Raceland said coldly, is not for us to choose death for this man, that is for the gods. Um, and then they take, like I said, they take him to to her she hasn't seen i mean she's aware of it uh, but she hasn't really seen him yet um before this before all these events gold moon as you know had been entranced by the temple so she had walked away to see what was going on and this is what um when she what she saw when she went inside the temple before all this awful events quote beneath the dome in the center of the room stood a marble statue of singular grace and beauty the light in the room emanated from the statue. Gold Moon entranced moved toward it. The statue was a woman in flowing robes. Her marble face bore an expression of radiant hope, tempered with sadness. A strange amulet hung around her neck. Then this goddess begins to talk to her. Uh, this is actually, uh, we're going to get into some of the, uh, the pantheon of gods now, beyond Paladine, who we've already discussed, and Tekesis. This is Mishakal, the goddess of healing. Um, then... Goldmoon's mother comes to speak to her, like her ghost, I guess. Tear song was a, was a great name, you know. Came to talk to her daughter, but then the but then the goddess speaks to her herself and says, "Quote: Do not do not be ashamed of your questioning, beloved disciple. Is your questioning that led you to us, and it is your anger that will sustain you through the many trials ahead? Wish you wasn't fucking just whistling Dixie. You come seeking for the truth, and you 
seeking the truth and you shall receive it. The gods are not turned away from man. It is man who turned away from the true gods. Corinne is about to face its greatest trial. Men will need the truth more than ever. You, my disciple, must return the truth and power of the true gods to man. It is time to restore the balance of the universe. Evil has now tipped the scales. When are we talking about balance? This is all important in this world. For as the gods of good have returned to man, so have the gods of evil, constantly striving for men's souls. The queen of darkness has returned, seeking that which will allow her to walk freely in this land once more. Dragons once banned to the nether regions walk the land. See, what happened was Huma had banished dragons. Dragons were, and, and the good dragons had agreed to go too because that was the balance. There's no evil dragons. There can't be good because that's going to tip it. So the, black, the evil dragons were banished. The good dragons went into, you know, just exile on purpose so so, uh, i think there's actually when i read about the other continent, i think a lot of them went to talitus because you know that's the other continent and it was away from all these earth-shattering events and there was stuff happening there too but apparently wasn't as important i I never quite got that why this other continent with all its other cool shit wasn't as important but anyway um then she tells her she needs to find these uh the discs of mishikal they're these platinum discs where the the words of the gods are recorded, I suppose. Um, and the the goddess says, quote, your way will not be easy. The gods of evil know and fear the greatest, great power of the truth. The ancient and powerful black dragon, Cassanth, known to men as Onyx, guards the discs. Her hair is, her lair is in the ruined city of Zaxaroth below, below us. Um, then she gives her, but then uh, the voice faded, quote, the voice faded. It was then Goldman heard everyone's death cry. And then we get to a really rough part. Um, like the other parts haven't been rough? <laughs> I mean, it's rough for, for the people involved, but it's like, quote, Karim and Sturm entered, this is after they've gone to the temple after Gold Moon, bearing the body of Riverwind between them on the makeshift litter. Flint and Tasselhoff, the dwarf looking old and weary, the kinder unusually subdued, stood on either side of the litter an odd sort of honor guard. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful passage right there. I always thought so. The somber procession moved slowly inside. Behind them came Raceland, his hood pulled over his head, his hands folded in his robe, the specter of death itself. That is fucking awesome. That is when people write and they put stuff like that in it. It's just such a, it creates such an image. You know what I mean? Just you see, I mean, I, you can just see it. Um, Tannis looking down at the, at the body at Goldman's feet, shut his eyes. Blood had soaked through the thick blanket, spreading in great dark splotches across the fabric. Quote, remove the blanket. Goldman commanded. Caramel looked at Tannis pleadingly. Goldmoon Tannis began gently. And before anybody can stop him, Raceland being who he is, pulling and pulls the blanket off. Um, this is rough. Uh, this She's, of course, shocked by what she's seeing and just destroyed by it. Quote, Kentoka, she said softly, my beloved. Reaching out a shaking hand, she touched the, the dying blade in the forehead. The sightless face moved toward her as if he heard. One of the blackened hands twitched feebly as if he would touch her. Then he gave a great shudder and lay perfectly still. Tears strain, streamed unheeded down Goldmoon's cheeks as she lay the staff across Riverwind's body. Soft blue light filled the chamber. Everyone the light touch felt rested and refreshed. The pain and exhaustion from the day, day's toils left their bodies. The horror of the dragon's attack lifted from their minds as the sun burns through fog. Then the light of the staff dimmed and faded. Night settled over the temple, lit only, lit once more only by the light emanating from the marble statue. And then something amazing happens. Uh, Tannis blinked, trying once more to reaccustom his eyes to the dark. Then he heard a deep voice. Kantoka, whatever they say in their language. He heard Goldwyn cry out in joy, and then they see that uh, Riverwind sits up, and he's completely healed. The blue staff had healed him. So, which wild, you, yeah, it should have been beyond its power, but the goddess is in there, so she, you know. Um, so then we have, you know, I guess sometime later, they're sitting around. Now they're discussing 
what they got to do that the god the, the goddess gave them this job. Um, now I'm wondering: is there going to be some sort of not a punishment, but for bringing that? Um, what was it? You name? think there's going to be a balance for yeah what, for bringing him back? Um, well, I mean, I I think that if you know this, if you remember the stuff they've been through, they were kind of due. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we're talking balance, they have been fucked since day one. So it's true. I mean, especially Riverwind and Goldmoon, who had gotten stoned by their own village and seen their people destroyed, all that stuff. I think the goddess would be like, uh, I think we're going to give them a mulligan on this one and just heal this guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I mean, I like that the fact that in this the term mulligan yeah, in this book, they the gods talk like quintessential fantasy gods. You know that. I like later on when they write, they make them almost talk just like regular people. And then they're just, the gods are talking amongst themselves and they're like squabbling, squabbling children in a way like Takesis there. Cause they're all siblings. Paladin, uh, Gillian and, and Takesis are siblings, like actual siblings. They're from this group. So they fight like, yes. Like Pal- shit never goes away. Well, I mean, and it's like, and, uh, Gillian pisses them both off because he's kind of always trying to balance them out. Like, guys, calm down. You know, we got to balance this out. Paladin's always calling Tiki's as a spoiled child. She always gets what she wants and all that stuff. It's a really awesome thing because it's not in a squabbling way. It's more like in a, I know you and I love you, but you're an awful person kind of way. You know what I mean? So um, I can't wait to get into that. That's in a, one of the books down the line. So, uh, so now um, they're just sitting around. They're doing what, you know, happens and things like that. They're getting their game plan together. Um, uh, another moment between Tasselhoff and Flint um, quote Tasselhoff, however, continued to poke around the rooms, peering into dark corners, finding little of interest. The kinder grew bored and returned to the group holding an old helmet in his hand. It was too big for him. Kinder folk never wore helmets anyway, considering the bother, their bother, bothersome and restrictive. He tossed it to the dwarf and uh, figured he'd use it as a cereal bowl. Well, <laughs> he liked the helmet, but it's got a, a tassel hair on it. And, and um, Tana says, well, that's horse hair. Flint says he's allergic to horses because he doesn't like riding them. Instead of throwing the, the helmet away, he says, he says uh, quote, no, it's not. The dwarf professed, frowning. He sniffed at it, wrinkling his nose. Failing to sneeze, he glanced at Tannis in triumph. It's hair from the mane of a griffin. Griffins don't have manes. So they're all like, yeah, that's what it is. You Peter Griffin. <laughs> <laughs> it's my hair. Um, then they all get an argument because they all get, they, Human, they. Flint says something uncharacteristically. I wouldn't call it xenophobic, but kind of racist. They're talking about the god and how they lost him. And Flint says, "Quote: The elves never lost him. Neither did the dwarves." Flint, Flint protested, scowling. I don't understand any of this. Reorks is one of the ancient gods, presumably. We worshipped him since before the cataclysm. And then Tannis lays into him. He says, "Quote: Worship or cry to him, despair because your people were shut out of the kingdom under the mountain." No, don't get mad. Tannis seeing, Tannis seeing the dwarf's flesh, face flush and angry red, held up his hand. The elves are no better. We cried to the gods when our homeland was wa- laid waste. We know the gods and we honor their memories as one would honor the dead. The elven clerics vanished long ago, as did the dwarven clerics. I remember Mishkal the healer. I remember hearing the stories for when I was young. I remember hearing stories of dra- uh, dragons too. Children's tales, Raceland say. It seems our childhood has come back to haunt us or save us. I don't know which. I've seen two miracles tonight, one of evil and one of good. I must believe in both if I haven't trust the evidence of my senses. That is a very good speech about how, you know, things are fucked and we're going to have to fix them, you know, so. But we have to understand that this was not. See, this is a big debate amongst people who are fans of Dragonlance is that, well, the gods punished them. 
I prefer to think that the gods kind of just lifted their protection and said, guys, you're on your own. This is the way it's going to be, you know, and then bad things happened. I'm, I, I prefer to think that they didn't send the, the meteors and comets down to smash on the surface. It was just that they happened to be there as they lifted their protection. And that's what happened. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a debate and, you know, I don't, care because I'm not that much of a nerd that I'm going to go to some kind of Comic-Con and argue with other Dragonlance fans about... You should. <laughs> I want to follow you with a camera. <laughs> it would be awesome. Um, I, I, I like this also, too, because um, we start we start getting to know who these characters are. Um, they all are going to go to sleep if they've, they've agreed that they're going to go down into Zaxaroth and get these discs back. And they know it's going to be rough. There's draconians down there. There's a fucking dragon down there. What are we going to do? So Sturm, being Sturm, uh, takes watch. And then we get to hear a passage, a nice passage concerning him. Quote, sitting at the base of the statue, Sturm felt a sweet peacefulness creep over him. Startled, he sat bolt upright and realized chagrin that he had nearly fallen asleep on watch. This was inexcusable. Braiding, braiding himself severely, the knight determined that he would walk his watch, the full two hours as punishment. He started to rise, then stopped. He heard singing, a woman's voice. Sturm stared around wildly, his hand on his sword. Then his hand slipped away from the hilt. He recognized the voice in the song. It was his mother's voice. Once more, Sturm was with her. Sturm was with her. They were fleeing Salamnia, traveling alone except for one trusted retainer, and he would be dead before they reached Solace. The song was one of his one of those wordless lullabies that were older than the dragons. Sturm's mother held her child close and tried to keep her fear from him by singing this gentle, soothing song. Sturm's eyes closed. Sleep blessed him, blessed of blessed all the companions. This is Mishakal basically get making sure they get a, a good nice rest and, and don't worry about things for at least for a little while. Um from there uh, then they all get up after a good night's rest, and they're getting um, they're getting ready to go down and do this awful thing. Um, we get to hear a little bit of uh, Tannis's roots here. Um, I, I kind of like this part. Quote: uh, Tannis finally put the thought of what ha- might happen to the out of his mind. That was not an easy task, especially for the elven part of Tannis. Elves revere life, and although they believe that death is simply a movement into a higher plane of existence. Death of any creature is seen to diminish life on this planet. That's actually kind of a nice, uh, nice sentiment. Tannis forced the human side of him to take possession of his soul today. He would have to kill, and he would have to perhaps accept the death of one or more of these people he loved. Um, they're all just trying to. I'm looking. Uh, they're trying to just get in there and get out without getting uh, getting caught. <laughs> basically, I mean, they don't want the dragon to see him. You know, they're trying basically. They're basically trying to be Bilbo Baggins, trying to sneak in there and get something, and get out. But I don't think it's going to work out too well. Um, here's another, here's a nice, uh, Tasselhoff. We're going to, we're going to read a lot of, quite a lot of Tasselhoff because he's, uh, he's my favorite character along with everybody. I else. like him. He's funny. As shit. He is funny. And he's also extremely endearing. Um, quote, Tasselhoff had his hoop pack and a small dagger. This is after we describe everybody else. Caraman has all his armor on. Sturm has polished his armor and his sword looking like he's getting ready to go into parade. You know, everybody else is racing was studying his magic. They're all getting ready, you know. Quote, Tassoff had his hoop hack and a small dagger he discovered. He w- discovered he was very proud of it and was deeply wounded when Kierman told him all it would be of use only if they ran into any ferocious rabbits. So, <laughs> it's, you know, um, we get an exchange between, um, there's a tall, pet- I never, I never quite got this one. Um, Quote, a tall, slime-coated pedestal stood in the center, so tall not even Rimberwind could see what, if anything, was on it. Tad stood beneath it, staring up at it wistfully. I tried to climb it last night. He said it was too slippery. I wonder what's up there. Well, whatever it is, we'll have to stay forever beyond the reach of Kinder, snap, tend to snap irritably. Um, 
then they're going down these stairs. Um, stairs were broken and covered with rotting plants and fungus. The past of the dead, Raceland said suddenly. The past of the death, the mage repeated. That's what the staircase is called. Um, this is where we start to get more of the distrust of Raceland because apparently he read this stuff and he didn't tell anybody. Because uh, Ster- uh, Flint says, quote, how in the name of Reorks Re- Re- do you know that? I have read something of the city, Raceland replied in his whispering voice. This is the first we've heard of it, Sturm said coldly. What else do you know that you haven't told us? And being Raceland, he has a cutting remark. Quote, a great many things, Knight, Raceland returned scowling. While you and my brother play with wooden swords, I spent my time in study. Obviously, that's tinged with a little bit of bitterness because Raceland, when he was, in a kid, was a kid, wanted to play like every other kid, but he was just too frail and sickly. And he would get hurt all the time playing with, you know, all the kids in Solace. So, would he have spina bifida? <laughs> I don't know what he, I mean, I think he was just, he's just one of those kids, you know, he, I, he, I know those kids. He was just frail and couldn't compete, you know, and. We had a kid on our football team. He'd get hurt on Monday in practice every week. Yeah. But he'd magically be okay on Friday to do his kickoff coverage, which <laughs> is the only thing he fucking did. Right. Um, then they get into an argument about him and Sturm have a lot of exchanges. Sturm really doesn't like racing at all. I don't, I never really figured out why. I think it's because he has a salamnic distrust of magic. You know, he's got that passed through his mother. See, Sturm, the Brightblades were were a noble family in Salamnia, and then they lost everything after the Cataclysm. Great name too, Sturm Bright. Bright it, it is really Sturm great, Bright. and he's a, and he's at first he's not a very good character. I didn't like I didn't like Sturm to begin with. In the second book, we're going to get into him a lot and how how great of a character he becomes. He becomes a a shining example of a. I mean, he's really good. But anyway, um, they just get an argument over. You know, the Tower of High Sorcery and all that stuff and what happened to Raceland. And, you know, none of them, just none of them besides Raceland really trust magic. As a matter of fact, in this world, mages aren't trusted very well. That's why there's only two, there used to be like five towers of High Sorcery. I think there was only two left because people destroyed the other ones. So, um, that's a lyric from an old uh, Bright Eyes song. If you can't understand something, it's best to be afraid. That's, and people, Follow that. And, you know, the descriptions they have of the different towers of high sorcery, we'll get into that. Like the one at Wayrath has this giant for it's, it's groves of trees. The one at Wayrath just moves like it'll appear. It'll appear at need. But if you don't need to be there, it won't appear to you. So you have to go to a certain point and just kind of walk around and wait for it to show up. If it doesn't show up, apparently it didn't need to be there. Where The other one in Palanthus has this thing called the Shoykin Grove in it. It's this. Haunted, awful, fear-inducing force. Even Tasselhoff was kind of scared to go. Was would feel kind of fear when he would look at it, but he was, of course, more curious than he was afraid. You know, but he, that's that's one of the only places in the world that a kinder will actually start to f- kind of get the inkling of fear. You know, it's actually the, they get into it. it's a pretty it's a pretty awesome passage. Like I said, that's that's in the next series, Legends, and that and we'll get in and that we'll do that one too. And that's when their real writing really starts to come on, and they really do some great things. Um, as they're getting ready to go back down and do their, um, and head into the city, get another good exchange. Quote, there might be anything up there, Taz said, looking back at the pedestal. He obviously hadn't heard a word of what had been said. A crystal ball of far seeing, a magic ring like once I had. Did I ever tell you about my magic ring? Flint, Flint groaned. Tannis had heard the kinder's voice prattling on as the two disappeared down the stairs. Tasshoff tells all these stories and probably half of them aren't true, you know, but he, you know, he's got a very like spin of yarn. Very active imagination. Um let's see. They're going down into okay. Now we get into another part where they're getting down into Zaxaroth, or at least the beginnings of it. And um let's see. 
Quote, they moved silently down the steep stairway that curled ever deeper into the hillside. First, it was intensely dark as they spiraled down. Then the way began to get lighter until Raceland was able to extinguish the light on the staff. Stern, soon Stern raised his head, holding others behind him. Beyond stretched a short corridor, no, than, no more than a few feet long. This led to a large arched doorway that revealed a vast open area. A pale gray, gray light filtered in the corridor as the, the odor of dark, dankness and decay. Um, then they began to hear something. Quote, the... Companions stood for long moments listening carefully. The sound of rushing water seemed to come from below and beyond the door, nearly drowning out all other sounds. Still, Tannis thought he heard something else, a sharp crack, and he felt more than, a hurt, and he felt more than heard a thumping and throbbing on the floor. But it didn't last long, and the sharp crack wasn't repeated. Um, then, more puzzling still, came a metallic scraping sound punctuated by an occasional shrill screech. Um, it's just basically going into the ruins. You know, there, a lot of this is, you know... Even with my notes, it's hard to get through sometimes because they're, they're you know in a fantasy book you just can't go well then they went there and then they went there you got to do a lot of stuff so um, they're trying to just figure out how they can get down into the city and then we get into something quote Flint sniffed I smell something something familiar I can't place it I smell death Goldmoon says shivering holding her staff close no nah, this is something worth Flint muttered then his eyes opened wide and his face grew red with rage and anger. I've got it, he roared. Gully dwarf. He unslung his axe. That's what those miserable little things were. They won't, they won't be gully dwarfs for long. There's these little creatures running past them. Um, and that's where we get to these creatures called gully dwarfs. Gully dwarfs are dwarves, but they're disgusting. They're filthy. They live in, they call them gully dwarfs because they will live anywhere. Frank Reynolds. <laughs> Yes, Frank Reynolds would make an excellent gully dwarf. They're filthy. They will eat anything. I mean, they'll they, things that would turn somebody else's stomach. They are. They're not evil like at all. They're actually good-hearted, but they're just so dumb and they're so. You know, I don't. I don't know why they were put into this. Like, I don't. I don't understand their creation. Like, Flint hates them because. There's another story called Flint the King where, and they, there's actually a whole book about it where they, he gets captured by gully dwarves and they make him their king, but he's a king in bondage. Like he's like, he's chained to a chair and can't move. And, you know, it's like, how the hell do you make a book out of that? But anyway, uh, day eight, I sit here looking at the same thing I've looked at. You know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, I think, no, not I think, um, they figure out that the gully dwarves are, um, they're just slaves of the draconians. They're making them, they're using them to do different things. Um, quote, wait a minute, Sturman interrupted. Gold dwarves aren't evil, not like goblins at any rate. What could they do be living here with draconians? Slaves, Rachel answered coolly. Undoubtedly, the gold dwarves have lived here many years, probably ever since the city was abandoned. When the draconians were sent, perhaps, to guard the discs, they found the gold dwarves and used them as slave labor. Um, Flint, of course, hates them so bad. He would kill them if given the opportunity. It's because of what happened to him. But again, they're not bad, not, not bad creatures. Um, they're trying to figure out. Goldmoon actually uh, sees them, and she feels bad for him. Quote: Do They all look like that. Goldmoon said, "Her eyes wide. They're so filthy and ragged. There are sores all over their bodies, and they have the brains of a doorknob." Flint grunted. Um, something really a, a character building moment for Bracelet is coming up soon. Um, he feels you, you, you'll, you'll start to see he feels pity for them because they were like him. They're picked on They're you know, dwarf, even though Flint hates them, he wouldn't have hated them so bad, but he still wouldn't have liked them. Like even in dwarven society, which is extremely clannish, Thurbarden has a big table where all these dwarf clans sit. 
you know, the Nidar being, you know, a group of dwarves and the the Gully Dwarves are called Agar. They're like they're at the table too, but they are bare, they're just invited just because they are technically family. You know what I mean? The Knights of the Kids table. <laughs> Basically, it's it's and you really kind of feel bad for them and they're so comical. And but there comes a really sweet moment coming up and it even extends into the next series of books. So, okay. This is when Raceland starts to shine. Quote, Raceland stopped when he neared the end of the quarter. The gully dwarves watched him curiously, ignoring the others behind him. The mage did not speak. He reached into a pouch on his belt and drew out several golden coins. The gully dwarves' eyes brightened. One or two at the front edge line at the front of the line edged towards Raceland to get a better view. The mage held up a coin so that he could all see it. Then he threw it in the high, high end of the air and it vanished. The gully dwarves gasped. Raceland opened his eye with a flourish to reveal the coin. They were scattered in applause. The gully dwarves kept, kept closer crept closer mouths gaping in wonder this is not magic on raceland's point of view when he was a kid he could do sleight of hand because his hands are extremely skilled you have to have skilled hands to be a mage because there's a lot of intricate things you have to trace and all that stuff he was very blessed from the beginning he at least had something you know what i mean and i love that about him that he even at a young age you know he did something to try to at least feel better about himself you know he couldn't wrestle with his brother and sturm and you know all the other kids in town girls weren't looking at him because he's a scrawny little thing. You know what I mean? So he just tried to make, you know, Raceland has a lot of things that make you feel for him, but he's such an asshole about it. You know what I mean? That I got to really like him. He got to be a favorite character. At first I hated him because everybody does, but that's by design. You know, I think that there isn't a beginning at of one. Margaret Weiss wrote a book without Tracy Heaton called the soul forge. And it's Raceland and Caraman's youth and how they developed. And I think Margaret Weiss really loved Raceland was her character. I would even want to be, be willing to think that when they played Dungeons and Dragons and did all these adventures, that that was her character that she played. You know what I mean? She's the one who called all his shots and all that stuff. So anyway, um, actually there is a good description of Gully Dwarfs here too. Quote, Gully Dwarfs or Agar, as her race was known, were truly a miserable lot. The lowest caste in Dwarven society that were to be found all over Kryn, living in filth and squalor in places that had been abandoned by most other living creatures, including animals. Like all dwarves, they were clannish, and several clans often lived together, following the rule of their chieftains or one particularly powerful clan leader. Three clans lived in Zaxaroth. These names get me. The Sluds, the Bulps, and the Glups. <laughs> it's just Jesus Christ. I know, or the Gloops, probably. Mm-hmm. Probably that's supposed to be. Um, and then they're West Virginia. <laughs> God, that's a terrible thing to say about our people. Well, I'm just saying that's the way the rest of the world <laughs> Absolutely, sees us. Absolutely. That is the way the rest of the world sees us. We are all a race of extremely large and aggressive gully dwarves. Um, quote, members of all three clans now surrounded Raceland. They were both males and females, so it was not easy to tell the sexes apart. Like all dwarves, uh, again, quote, the females lacked whiskers on their chins but had them on their cheeks. They wore a tattered overskirt wrapped around their waist extending to their bony knees. Otherwise, they were every bit as ugly as their male counterparts. Um, then Raceland does, he keeps on with his magic. He's got these creatures entranced quote, Raceland with ma- marvelous dexterity made the coin dance over his knuckles, flipping it in and out of his fingers. Then he made it disappear only to reappear, reappear the inside the ear. Of some started gully dwarf who stared at the mage in amazement. The last tricks produced such a momentary interruption in the performance of the, as the Adagard's friends grabbed him and peered intently into, into his ear. One of them even sticking his finger inside to see if more coins might be forthcoming. Um, this interesting activity ceased that when Raceland reached into another pouch and removed a small scroll of parchment, spreading open with his long, thin, thin fingers. The mage began to read from it, chanting softly, I'm not going to do magic chants. I'm not going to say what they say because it sounds ridiculous. 
Do it. Okay. Sutongus Moipar asked Akalar Kalapad, whatever the fuck that meant. I mean, it's just absolutely gibberish. Um, what Raitlin has now done is cast a spell of friendship. Um, Quote, the goalie dwarves were enthralled, and Tannis noticed the expressions on their faces changed from interest to open, unabashed affection for the mage. They reached out and patted him with their dur- dirty hands, jab- jabbering away in their shapeless language. Um, let's see. Then they get into a fight trying to race and ask them where, where to go see the dragon. And then they get into a fight because they get in an argument and start a fist fight. Um, Quote, quarter lead that way, said one pointing east. No, it lead that way, said another pointing west. A scuffle broke out. The goalie dwarfs pushing and shoving. Soon fists were flying. And then one goalie dwarf had another on the ground kicking him, yelling, that way, that way, at the top of his lungs. Um, Sturm turned to Tannis. This is ridiculous to bring every draconian in this place down on us. I don't know what that crazy musician has done, but you've got to stop him. Um, And then... One, one of them steps forth. Quote, before Tannis could inter- intervene, however, one female goalie dwarf took matters in her, into her own hands. Dashing into the melee, she grabbed the two combatants, knocked their heads together smartly, and dumped them on the floor. The others, who had been cheering them on, immediately hushed, and the newcomer turned to Raceland. She had a thick, bulbous nose, and her hair stood up wildly on her head. She wore a patch and ragged dress, thick shoes, and stockings that collapsed around her ankles. But she seemed to be a leader among the goalie dwarves, for they all eyed her with respect. This may have been because she carried a huge, heavy bag slung over one shoulder. The bag dragged along the ground as she walked, occasionally tripping her, but the bag was apparently of great importance to her. When one of the other golly dwarves attempted to touch it, she whirled in and smacked him across the face. Um, he cast a spell on her, though. Um, turns out her name is, is Bupu, or Bupu, and <laughs> Raceland, it's for one thing, one thing, when you read this, he's extremely gentle with them and understanding. He never is mean to them as the others are. He doesn't, you know, I think this humanizes him a lot. I think that might have been the reason they created him because they might have been saying, man, in this narrative, Raceland is really an asshole. How are we going to make him more appealing? You know, so I, I really think they might have decided to just throw these characters in so they could, you know, so they could humanize them some. And it worked like, uh, you know, it worked very well. Uh, so he's trying to get them. Uh, Raceland asked him how many bosses are down there, but then that turn, turns out to be a pointless, pointless endeavor. Quote, the gully dwarf frowned, concentrating. She raised a gr- uh, grubby hand. One, she said, holding up one finger, and one, and one, and one. Looking up at Raceland triumphantly, she held up four fingers and said, two. I'm beginning to agree with Flint, Sturm growled. <laughs> um, then he asked him what that sound they heard were, that they heard was. Um, they say something about up. Down up, you know. Anyway, they don't. It's you don't really get an idea of what they're talking about uh, in the narrative. Of course, they're just going to take him to it. Quote: Raceland being carried along in a tide of agar, looked back at Tannis, motioning with his hand. Tannis signaled to Riverwind and Flint, and everyone started moving down the hall behind the Gully Dwarves. Those Raceland had charmed remained clustered around him, trying to stay as close as possible, while the rest ran off down the corridor when the whip cracked again. The companions followed Raceland and the Gully Dwarves down to the corner, where the screeching noise started up again, much louder now. This we asked her name. Finally, finds out her name is Bupu, and then he uh, he asked her, "Do you know where the dragon's lair is?" And she goes, she says, "Quote dragon." Repeated Bupu repeated astounded. You want dragon? And he tries to explain to her, "No, we don't want the dragon. We just want to know where his lair is." You know, basically trying to get directions. Um, but then she has a good idea. Um, she's going to take him to go see what's known as the High Bulb. It's basically their chieftain. You know, um, then. Uh, Tasselhoff comes running back down the hall and uh, quote, 
Tannis looked around. He had completely forgotten about Tasselhoff. The kinder came running back in from around the corner, his top knot dancing, his eyes shining with merriment. It's a lift, Tannis, he said, like in dwarven mines. I was in a mine once. It was the most wonderful thing. They had a lift that took that took rock up and down. This is just like it. Well, almost like it. You see, he was suddenly overcome with giggles and couldn't go on. The rest glaring at him, the kinder made a violent effort to control himself. They're using a giant lard rendering pot. The goalie dwarves that have been standing in the in the line here run out when one of the Draco, Draco thingamajiggers cracks his big whip. Just the way he talks is funny, too. They all jump into the pot that's attached to a huge chain wrapped around a spoked wheel with teeth that fit to the links on the chain. That's what's squeaking. The wheel turns, and they go down they go, and pretty soon up comes another pot. So the goalie dwarves are going down. The draconians are coming back up. They have them doing their, you know, doing all their stuff. Um and they're going to, but now they're going to be taken to the lift and trying to get taken down to the high bulb. So um, then we get to a thing where they get, of course, they get to the lift because that's where the story's going. But then I like the fact that sometimes in fantasy, the characters are just too skilled at fighting. Like the fights always go their way. They're never really, there's not a lot of um, suspense. Like somebody like, for example, the biggest example of this, and you know, I, I love the books that he's in and stuff. Dritz Doerden, the dark elf from the uh, Forgotten Realms books. He's now an icon. A lot of people in fantasy would know who I'm talking about. He is like a god. You cannot beat him in, in a fight, you know, and he's just he's fast. He's unbeatable, basically. So are his companions when they fight. They never trip. They never make a mistake. You know, I don't like that, really. That's not that's not fun it's and i like the fact that we're getting to a thing now where they all get into this fight and they don't do very well um because they're not used to fighting with each other yet so um and things are chaotic um let's see they get to the uh get to the lift and um quote four armor clad draconians two of them swinging leather whips and armed with curved swords stood around the pot they were visible only briefly then mist hid them from you Can- tannis could hear the whip crack and a guttural voice bellowing you louse ridden dwarf vermin where are you going what are you doing holding back there get into this pot before i flay the filthy fish off the end i just ass- acting like an asshole the draconian stopped in mid-sentence bulging it's bulging its eyes bulging out of his reptilian head as caraman emerged from the mist Roaring his battle cry. That would be a pretty terrifying sight, a guy that big coming at you. The draconian let out a yell that changed into a choking gurgle as Karen grabbed the creature around its scrawny neck, lifted it off its clawed feet, and hurled it back against the wall. Goldor was scattered as the body hit the wall with a bone-crushing thump. Um, that's when they get into the fight in the pot. They, Karen jumps down into the pot, so does Flint, um, and this is one of the things that happened. Quote, get off me, Flint roared from the bottom of the pot. Blinded by his helm, he was being slowly crushed by Caraman's big feet. In a spurt of ferocious anger, the dwarf straightened his helm, then heaved himself up, causing Caraman to lose his footing and tumble forward into the draconian. The creature sidestepped while, while Caraman staggered into the huge chain. The draconian swung its sword wildly. Caraman ducked, and the sword clanged usefully against the chain, not- notching the blade. Flint hurled himself to the draconian, hitting it squarely in the stomach with his head. The two fell against the side. Basically, it's a big melee, and nobody's doing very well with it. You know, um, it, you know, everybody's jumping into the pot. It's starting to sway back and forth. Um, let's see what else. Oh, then Raisel has a, a stroke of genius. He said, uh, "He goes, quote, come here, my friends." Raisel said swiftly. The spellbound dwar- gully dwarves gather regal around him. Those bosses that down there want to hurt me. He said softly. The gully dwarves growled. Several frowned darkly. A few shook their fists at the pot full of draconians. But you can help. You can stop them. Here, it's pretty funny though because they react. They're they're still his friends, but they're like, 
Quote, the golly dwarf stared at, the, stared at the mage dubiously. Friendship, after all, went only so far. All you must do, Frank Raceland says patiently, is run over and jump on that chain. He pointed at the chain attached to the draconian's pot. The golly dwarf's face brightened. That didn't sound so bad. In fact, it was something they did almost daily when they missed catching hold of the pot. And then they do that, and it makes him sink down. Um, so they win that. Um, then they're going to the to see the high bulb, you know, in in the down in the city. They haven't really gotten down the city proper yet, though. Um, Bupu has taken them under a wing and is guiding them to them. Um, they come to a wall. Um, let's see. She. The the Gully Dwarf takes something out of, quote, the half-elf turned to see Bupu remove something limp and shapeless from the bag she carried over her shoulder. Stepping up to the wall, she waved the thing in front of the stone slab and muttered a few words. The wall shivered, and within seconds, a doorway appeared leading into darkness. They think it's magic. Um, she says it's magic. Um, but what it was in her hand, lying in the, quote, lying in the Gully Dwarf's grubby palm was a dead rat, his teeth fixed in a permanent grimace. Raceland raises eyebrows, then Tasselhoff touched his arm. It's not magic, Raceland, the kinder whispered. It's a simple hidden floor lock. I saw it when she pointed at the wall, and I was about to say something when she went through this magic rigmarole. She then steps on it, and she gets close to the door and waves that thing. The kinder giggled. She probably tripped it once accidentally while carrying the rat. <laughs> but she heard what he said. Quote, Boo gave the kinder a scathing glance. Magic, she stated, pouting and stroking the, the, the rat lovingly. They are disgusting creatures. Um, then they come to a pipe. And Bupa says they're going to have to go down into it. Um, Karaman is too big, he thinks. So they get him in there, and Tannis eventually has to kick him in the ass to get him down. Um, this is a good saying. Um, quote, which is what something that Tannis said, quote, sanity ended when we followed Teak into the end of the last home. So that's, uh, and Sturm agrees. True enough, the knight agreed with a sigh. Um, let's see. We get to see another... Um, very humanizing moment for Raceland because he starts to cough and um, does he have COVID? He probably it seems like he has a permanent permanent form of COVID. Um, but she knows he has a cough and she uh, it's a, it's a lizard and she offers it to him. She says, "You wear a, a round neck." She said, "Cure cough." The mage, accustomed to handling much more unpleasant objects than this, smiled at Bupu and thanked her, but declined the cure, assuring that his cough was much improved. He, you know. Anybody else would have done that to him. He would have cursed him or, you know, been shitty to him. When she does it, um, he was just, he was nice and kind about it. It actually made you endear him. So they get to the end of the tunnel and they go flying out. Um, and then there's a cloud, like a white cloud. Quote, what? Flint flew out of the end of the pipe, f- falling on his hands and knees. He peered through the cloud. Poison, he gasped, crawling over to the mage. Raceland shook his head, but he couldn't answer. Boo-boo clutched the mage. Dragging him in toward the door. Goldmoon slid out on her stomach, knocking the breath from her body. Riverwind tumbled out, twisting his body to avoid hitting Goldmoon. There was a clanging bang as Caraman's shield shot out from the pipe. Caraman's spiked armor and broad girth had slowed him only, uh, only enough so that he was able to crawl out of the pipe, but he was bruised and battered and covered with green filth. By the time Tannis arrived, everyone was gagging, gagging in the powdery atmosphere. What in the name of the abyss, Tannis said, astonished, then promptly choked as he inhaled a lungful of the white stuff. Get out of here, he croaked. Where's that gully dwarf? But it's not me. <laughs> They said, where's Tasselhoff? Quote, here I am, said a cloaked, choked a miserable voice. Tannis whirled around. Tasselhoff, at least Tannis presumed it was Tasselhoff, stood before him. The kinder was covered from tot knot to toes in a thick, pasty white substance. All Tannis could see of him were two brown eyes blinking out of a white mask. Then Tannis understood. He put his, his hand over his face out of his smile. Flower, he murmured. It was, 
it was there. They came and they came, are into the city and they came into a bakery and they hit a big bag of flour and it busts all over the place. And Tasselhoff was the first one to hit it. So he's just cover head to toe in flour. So that would be a funny moment, you know, especially to, um, we're getting now into the city proper and there's a good, a, a good description of what Zaxroth, what happened to Zaxroth in the, in, in the cataclysm. Quote, the night of the cataclysm had been a night of horror for the city of Zaxaroth. When the fiery mountain struck Crin, a meteor or comet, the land split apart. The ancient, beautiful city of Zaxaroth slid down the face of a cliff to a vast cavern formed by the huge rents in the ground. Thus, underground, it was lost to, to the sight of men, and most people believe the city had vanished entirely, swallowed up by new sea. But it still existed, climbing to the rough sides of the cavern wall, spread out upon the floor of the cavern, there were ruined buildings on several different levels. The building the companions had fallen into, which Tamas assumed must have been a bakery, was on the middle level, caught by rocks and held against the sheer cliff face. Water from underground streams flowed down the sides of the rock and ran to the street, swirling among the ruins. It's just basically the city had fallen almost wholesale into the down the side of a mountain, and it had you know crumbled and it's still there, but now it's got water running through it. And it's just ruined. Um. Even more, quote, they could see by the dim light that filtered through the cracks in the cavern roof far above the heart of the ancient city lay, lay scattered about on the floor of the cavern in many states of decay. Some of the buildings were almost completely intact. Others, however, were nothing but rubble. A chill fog created by the many waterfalls plunging down into the cavern hung over the city. Most of the streets had become rivers, which combined to flow into a deep abyss to the north. You know, it's pretty, pretty fucked up, pretty messed up city. Um, then they're getting to see... Um, they're coming to the great plaza. That's, you know, they have to cross it to get to where the gully dwarves are. Quote, on the other side of the great flagstone plaza were great tall marble columns that supported a stone roof. The columns were cracked and shattered, letting the roof sag. The mist parted and Tannis caught a glimpse of a courtyard behind the columns. Dark forms of tall dome buildings were visible beyond the courtyard. Then the mist closed around them. Though now sunk into degradation and ruin, this structure must have once been the most magnificent in Zaxaroth. It's a royal palace, basically. So... Um, but in the middle of the palace and they can't see him is the dragon. The dragon is, is kind of waiting there. It doesn't see him yet because they're, they're in a secret way with the gully dwarves. Um, she's in the process of basically lining these draconians out for not, uh, doing a better job. Um, I, I always like the description of the dragon. So, um, it's just more of that. Quote, sleek and shining black, her leathering wings folded to either side. Cassanth slithered out from underneath, under the roof, ducking her head to fit beneath a sagging stone facade. Her, cloud, her clawed front feet clicked on the marble stairs as she stopped and stared into the floating mist with her bright red eyes. Her back legs and heavy reptilian tail were not visible, the dragon's body extending 30 feet or more back into the courtyard. A cringing, like I said, about 30 feet long, a cringing draconian walked beside her, the two apparently deep in conversation. They're getting a report from what's happened and... Um, She's basically laying him into him and talking about Verminard again. Verminard, who we'll meet soon, is a dragon high lord. And he's a very interesting character. He is pretty much, uh, you know, the quintessential Dungeons and Dragons villain. I mean, he's he's cool. I've always liked him. There's actually a book about him, how he becomes who he is. and But we're not getting into that right now. Um, people, they all have, kind of have different uh, plans about how they're going to get the discs. Karim and Sturm think that they should kill the dragon. Rayson basically calls him stupid. He's like, you know, your brains are all in your sword arm. How are you going to kill a dragon that can use magic and is three times your size and all this shit? Um, and that's very true, and they all kind of have to admit it. Um, there's a good uh, 
exchange with uh, Tannis and Raceland. Quote, maybe we're worrying needlessly. Tannis scratched his beard, glancing back at the palace that was now obscured by the mist. Perhaps this is the only dragon left in Kryn, one that survived the Age of Dreams. Raceland's lips twisted. Remember the stars, Tannis, he murmured. The Queen of Darkness has returned. Recall the words of the canicle, swarm of her shrieking hosts. Her hosts were dragons, according to the ancient ones. She has returned, and her to- hosts have come with her, and he's absolutely correct. Then we get to the dra- the Gully Dwarfs apparently know a secret way, but Bubu Bup- tells them that the High Bolt knows a secret way. So um, then we get to inter- introduce to the High Bolt. Quote, the great High Bolt, Fudge One, was a Gully Dwarf among Gully Dwarfs. His- he was almost intelligent, rumored to be fabulously wealthy, and a notorious coward. The Bulps had long been the elite clan of Zaxaroth. Ever since Nolf Bulp fell down a shaft one night in a drunken stupor and discovered the city. Upon sobering up the next morning, he claimed it for his clan. The Bulps promptly moved in and in later years graciously allowed the clans Slewd and Gloop to occupy the city, city as well. They are just loathsome little creatures. Um, they're, the way they, they're just, they're garish. They don't know how to do anything. Um, they're, I like that they describe what they've done to this uh, once, you know, beautiful place. Quote, the city of Zaxaroth had been stripped of its fire by the early bulbs. He used it to decorate the throne room of their lord. Following the philosophy that if one yard of gold cloth is good, 40 yards is better, and totally uninhibited by good taste, the gully dwarves turned the throne room of the great high bulb into a masterpiece of confusion. Heavy frayed gold cloth swirled and draped every available inch of wall space. Huge hap Tapestries hung from the ceiling, some of them upside down. The tapestries must have once been beautiful, delicate colored threads blending to show scenes of city life or portray stories of le- stories and legends from the past. But the gully dwarves, wanting to liven them up, painted over the cloth in garish, clashing colors. Thus, Stern was shocked to sit to the core of his being when cr- confronted by a red huma battling a purple spotted dragon beneath an emerald green sky. Graceful nude statues standing in all the wrong places adorn the room as well. These two, the Gully Wards, have enhanced, considering pure white marble drab and depressing. They painted the statue with enough realism and attention to detail that Caraman, with an embarrassed glance, glance at Goldmoon, flushed bright red and kept his eyes on the floor. So they, you know, painted marble statues that were naked to look like real people, so you just have naked people standing around. Then the High Bulb says he's got a map. That's one of the funniest parts of the whole thing because it actually has a picture of the High Bulb's map, and it says, Secret Map. You know, read. Oh, we shouldn't be reading that. <laughs> and it says secret room, big bark of a dragon. I mean, it's just, you know. Um, I, I, as a great quote by Caraman, quote, I don't trust that little bastard any farther than I can stand the smell of him. Um, and I don't think they should have, uh, they should have trusted him. I mean, uh, he was, in a while, he does give him up. And um, anyway, um, we have an exchange here, a good one between um, Riverwind and Goldmoon because they had gotten into an argument earlier. Uh, they were going to supposed to climb down this, these vines. Goldmoon is afraid of heights and Riverwind said it in front of everybody and embarrassed her really bad so she you know, got angry with him. And um, she actually has done something she's never done before. She asked, she asked him to forgive her for being so angry. And um, she says, quote, um, I've been chief and daughter so long is the only thing I know how to be it is my strength. It gives me courage when I'm frightened. I don't think I can let go. And he says, I don't want you to let go. I fell in love with chief and daughter. The first time I saw you, do you remember at the games held in your honor? And this is a nice exchange. We're talking about, um, Riverwind got in trouble because he acknowledged that her father's leadership, but denied that she was a goddess. And he said that you cannot make God, God's men cannot make gods of other men, which is a great, 
um, a great quote. Um, but anyway, we get to a side story here that involves Raceland and Caraman. Raceland knew that there is a spell book in here with a from a mage named Fist and Dantalus, who will be an extremely important character later. Um, he's this. He's what's, what was known as an archmage and an archmage. They're like almost godlike in their power. And he was the first one. And this was, you know, hundreds of years before. So apparently Raceland knows his spellbook is here. I don't know how he knew that. They don't really go into that. <laughs> of course, they're not going to. It's, you know, it's a little bit of exposition, exposition to explain it, but they didn't really go into it. So um, they, they have a plan to go try to sneak in um, when the dragon's asleep. And, and get the, because dragons are notorious these sleepers, and just get the disc and get out. And they're even going to, might even try to kill the dragon, you know, if they're forced to do it. Um, but Raceland takes care of him aside. Um, there is something you must do for me, my brother. Something you must bring from, from me from the dragon's lair. Raceland's touch was unusually hot, his eyes burned. Caraman uneasily started to pull back, seeing something in his brother he hadn't seen that since the Towers of High Sorcery, but Raceland's hand clutched him. What is it, Caraman asked reluctantly. A spell book. Raceland whispered. So they get in. Um, he says his fist into Antilus, and then Caraman, they have a moment where Caraman sees where his brother is going. Quote, the way you describe the spell book, Caraman hesitated, fearing what, what Raceland would reply. He swallowed and started over. This fist and Antilus, did he wear the black robes? He could not meet his brother's piercing gaze. It pisses Raceland off. Quote, ask me no more, Raceland. hissed. You're as bad as the others. How can any of you understand me? Seeing his twin's look of pain, the mage sighed. Trust me, Car- Caraman, is not a particularly powerful spell book, one of the mage's early books, in fact. One he had when he was very, very young indeed. Raceland murmured, staring off, far off. Then he blinked his head more briskly. But it will be valuable to me nonetheless. You must get it. You must. So um, they're now going to do their, their thing. And let's see. They're really dreading this task, of course. They're going to face a dragon. They're, you know, going this secret way. And they're having their exchanges. Uh, you know, they're who's in line. You know, they're always in line at the back of the line, of course, is Flint and Tassoff. Another good exchange. It's one of my favorite exchanges that I've highlighted. Quote, Taz paused, clinging to the ladder while Sturm slowly pushed on the grating. You know, Flint, the kinder said seriously, my people don't fear death. In a way, we look forward to it, the last big adventure. But I think I'd feel badly about leaving this life. I'd miss my things. He patted his pouches and my maps, and you and Tannis. Unless he added, brother, we all go to the same place when we die. Flint had a vision of this, had a sudden vision of the happy go lucky kinder lying cold and dead. He felt a lump of pain in his chest and was thankful for the concealing darkness. Clearing his throat, he said huskily, If you think I'm going to share my afterlife with a bunch of kinder, you're crazy than Raceland. Come on. That really hit Flint hard to think about Tasselhoff dying, you know. And then I think. That's where we're going to end. They are getting ready to go into the dragon's lair. And then we've got a, a big part next week. I just wanted to finish with that, that uh, it might not be a strong finish, but this episode again was, I really felt helped develop all these characters. And, you know, um, you know, it's one of the best parts of the book until the very end. The very end is an extremely strong part of the book, and it's it's, it's exciting, and I think everything comes together really well. I felt this was a good second part because it, you know, we went through some terrible things. You know, there all that was really terrible. I mean, this was a this was a real Empire Strikes Back type moment. You had people getting melted by acid and the aftermath of a massacre of a village. You know, Somebody got brought back to life. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a really this part was big, and um, you got a, a wicker dragon. Yeah, 
that could fly for some reason. I don't know how that happened. Um, There's holes in the wings. <laughs> like the, the wind resists. Like, how you, how you do? It doesn't matter. There's as many holes in the wings as there are holes in the story, but that's okay. Um, I just uh, I, I, re- I really felt that uh, it would be better to stop here and then um, start with the confrontation they're going to have with the dragon, and it's a it's a big part. And I thought this was a good setup. So um, I hope you guys join me next week and uh, just keep listening. So you're going to sign off. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really have a sign off, but just make something up. <laughs> Wubba lub dub dub. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha